Good morning. <clears throat> Who's excited for the book of Acts? Ooh, yeah. I'm just excited to be with y'all again. Uh, thank y'all for praying for me and my family last week and two weeks ago um, as we were uh, battling COVID. I assure you, we're outside our, our 10-day quarantine and all of that now and recovered. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you especially to uh, Adam Moskal who filled in for Pastor Brian, who was also down, and to uh, Pastor Thad for filling in for me last week. And uh, it's just good to be back with y'all. But I am uh, very excited to, to launch our uh, new sermon series for 2022 together with you this morning in the book of Acts. My name is Will Duvall. By the way, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new, we're so glad to have you with us especially. We have a, a New to West Hills class lunch right after church today. We do that every other month. And so even if you didn't sign up, we always make extra food. We'd love to have you stick around afterward and uh, find out more about you and what you're looking for in a church and tell you more about our uh, wonderful church here. We are uh, subtitling our series through Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses, and I've titled this morning's message, You Will Be My Witnesses, because as we're going to see, the author of Acts, Luke, he gives us the thesis for this book its mission statement, if you will, right off the bat here in chapter 1, verse 8. If you have your Bible and want to go ahead and uh, begin opening there, if you haven't already with me, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one of those at the info bar, out these double doors. Um, you can hop up and grab one right now. <clears throat> Someone will meet you there and get you a Bible. But chapter 1, verse 8 is the, the, the linchpin of all of this. Uh, when the risen Lord Jesus, in his final words before he left earth and ascended back into heaven, he turned to his disciples, now turned apostles. So that's an interesting, important shift in title to note, by the way, Jesus' inner circle, his 12 cl closest followers and friends. They were almost exclusively called disciples throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels, disciple means follower. They had followed Jesus around in his time on earth, but now their title in the book of Acts is going to shift to apostles. An apostle means a sent one, because as Jesus is commissioning them here, in verse 8, he says, I'm sending you out, as the video just said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as we're going to see, that commission serves not only as the thesis and mission statement for the book of Acts, but it actually provides us with an outline of the book as well. Chapters 1 through 7 of Acts will focus on the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 12, uh, 8 through 11, it will record the expansion of their witness into Judea, into Judea and Samaria. And then finally, chapters 12 through 8 will detail the beginnings of the spread of the gospel into all the ends of the earth, as far as Rome, by chapter 28. <clears throat> now, your Bibles may tell you that the full title uh, traditionally ascribed to this book is the Acts of the Apostles. That's a bad title. Uh, and lest you think I'm, you know, casting dispersions on, on God's holy word. The titles uh, attributed to the Bible are not divinely inspired. They were thrown in by uh, compilers of the Bible centuries later. And so uh, God's holy word is perfect. The titles aren't. It's a bad title, Acts of the Apostles. And I'll tell you why, because if you know anything about the book of Acts, and if you don't, by the way, if, if you're coming to this first time to the book of Acts, and we're so excited to have you with us over this journey throughout this next year. We'd love to have you study through Acts together with us for the first time. How exciting for you to go through it. But uh, if you are familiar with the book, you will know that very little of what we're going to see unfold over the course of the next 28 chapters can be attributed in any way to the apostles. I count 30 miracles in these 28 chapters of Acts. That's more than one miracle per chapter. And by the way, we should also note here at the beginning that this book spans a period of time of roughly 30 years from A.D. 33 until A.D. 63. And so that's about one miracle per year in these first three decades of the early church. But I point that out to you up front because you may be tempted over the next year 
to put the early church up on a pedestal. Like, man, look at all those amazing, miraculous things that were happening in the life of the early church. Now, we just need to get back to that. And to be sure, God did accomplish some really remarkable, praiseworthy acts through these apostles, but that's just the thing. God was the one who accomplished all of these acts through the apostles. So our study of Acts this year shouldn't so much inspire us to revere the early church as it inspires us to revere the God of the early church. And friends, the God of the first century miracle-working church is the same God of the 21st century American church still today. Do you believe that? The same Holy Spirit who empowered every miracle that we're going to witness on the pages of Scripture over this next year is the same Holy Spirit who lives in you and who lives in me and who still empowers the miracles that we still see happening all around us in the world today. And if you don't think that God still works miracles, at least one per year in the life of his church, then you really need to pay more attention. God is still at work in and through his church. And we know that the greatest miracle of all occurs that every time the Lord regenerates a sinner's dead heart and causes a person to be born again through the power of the gospel, that is a miracle that God still works every single day all around the world calling sinners to saving faith in his son Jesus. And yet, and I want to be totally transparent with you here at the front of this series about my own motives in selecting the book of Acts for us to study together as a church in 2022 and my own deepest desire and prayer for this church for West Hills I think it should be all of our deepest desire and prayer for our church is that we have not witnessed God work that miracle of salvation at our church at West Hills here, nearly as often as we ought to want him to, expect him to, ask him and beg him to, we ought to be begging God collectively as a church to see lost people saved by the power of the gospel every single Sunday here, every single week, all throughout the week, every single day, Monday through Saturday, as we are empowered as God's witnesses and sent out to our individual ministries with those within our own personal scope of influence to witness to the good news of Jesus Christ in the greater St. Louis area, we ought to be begging the Holy Spirit God to come and do a work in people's hearts and save people miraculously, save sinners into his kingdom. For all of the reasons that we have to celebrate the last year, 2021, together as a church. And there are many. There were many wins. I didn't even update you on this, I don't think. We, you know, the, the week before the new year, we were still you know, begging for money. We needed $40,000 to close our budget gap. We finished $40,000 in the black. We, we had an $80,000 week of, of year in giving. I mean, but listen, all the money in the world, that's not how the judge, the, the church judges its success. All the money in the world isn't worth one lost soul. I don't care about the budget. I really don't, unless it's empowering gospel ministry. For all the reasons we have to celebrate together as a church, I can only think of one person in 2021 who was saved that I know of through through the ministry of this church. And we praise God for that. And we praise God that, that he's the shepherd that leaves the 99 to seek out one person, that he cares about that one person. Praise God that there is one more person now who has a saving relationship with Jesus and the hope of eternal life because of the ministry of this church last year. But brothers and sisters, I don't think I'm setting the bar too high for us when I say that we cannot be okay with that as a church. I I don't know what the number is for how many people we ought to expect and pray boldly for God to save through the ministry of West Hills in 2022, but it's not one. I'm not praying for one. I'm praying for a lot more than that, and I hope you are too. 
We have got to be praying, pleading with God to use this church to save more people. Listen, there's not a problem with demand. We're all worried about the world's supply chain problems right now. You want new windows for your home, you gotta wait six months. We ought to be worried about the gospel supply chain problem. The demand is there. People need the hope of Jesus now more than ever. Amen? We've got a supply chain problem. Are we giving them the gospel? Are we being his witnesses? Forget about Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth for a minute. Are we faithfully witnessing in our own Jerusalems, in our backyards, in our offices, with our extended families and friends? As a church, we need prayer and we need work in this area. What we need is a work of the Holy Spirit. Because listen, you and I, we can't change people's hearts. We can witness till we're blue in the face. And I hope and pray that we will, and we do. But we can't change people's hearts. Only God can do that. But in his providence, we're going to see this on every page of Acts for the next year. In his providence, God uses you and me as vessels to carry his good news of salvation to those who desperately need to hear it. West Hills, may we be those vessels in 2022. All right. That's all the sermon before the sermon. The reason that we're studying Acts this year and what I am desperately pleading with you to pray with me for this year in our midst as a church, that God would save sinners through the ministry of this church in the year to come. Through you, through me, being his witnesses. But to finish our introduction here and the thought on the title, <clears throat> the better title of the book isn't the Acts of the Apostles, but rather, as Alan Thompson puts it, the Acts of the Lord Jesus through his people by the Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of the Father's mission. Right, you got that? So you can put a big X through your table of contents. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Lord Jesus through, through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of his purposes in the world, his mission to seek and save the lost. So with all of that by way of introduction, uh, I would invite you now to stand with me as you're able, again, out of respect for the reading of God's word from the book of Acts, chapter 1. God willing, we will make our way all the way through verses 1 through uh, 11 this morning. <clears throat> but hear the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for, God, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, <clears throat> they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up <coughs> And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, <clears throat> as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you 
once again this morning for your word. For the direction, the guidance that it provides us often say that we, we don't know your will, we don't know your way, we, we pray for you to make it clear to us. God, we thank you as we will hear this morning and as we'll hear on every page of the book of Acts that when we don't know what your exact will is for this or that specific decision in our lives that we can always know your big picture will and plan and purpose to seek and save the lost and to use us, to use the redeemed, to use your church to accomplish that through the proclamation of the gospel, that we will always be within your will if we're preaching the gospel. God, we, I, I pray that you would use this morning and this whole year, this, this whole study series in Acts to, to embolden your people to go in your heart. We need a heart after your heart for the lost and to reach them with your love, Jesus. Father, if there's anyone this morning who needs to know your love, your salvation, your forgiveness for sins. I pray that even through this, this message about mission, that they might hear the gospel clearly and they might die to their sins, repent and turn and trust in you, Jesus, for forgiveness and salvation. Pray this in Christ's name for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> So I already told you that the thesis for the book of Acts, the Cliff's Notes summary, this is all about God's mission to send his people in the power of his spirit to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to see all of those components right up front in these first 11 verses for this morning. Specifically, here's your outline for the sermon. Luke reveals here are five features of Jesus' mission that he left us with following his death, resurrection, and ascension. So the first, the first aspect of this great, all-important mission that we'll spend our, the bulk of our time on together this morning is point number one is the mission's environment. It's, it's context, the context into which Jesus delivers his marching orders to his church and the context for the book of Acts itself. Luke tells us four important details about this book right up front. Uh, to best understand anything that you read, you really need to understand these four things. You need to understand its genre, its author, its audience, and its purpose, the purpose for which it was written. Genre, author, audience, and purpose. Luke gives us all four of that here in verses 1 through 5 in the context. First, he tells us Acts' genre. Acts is a book of history. If you want to put four subtitles under point number one, <clears throat> Acts is history. In fact, it's the only book of the New Testament that is classified as history. Four Gospels, biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One historical book, Acts. Thirteen Pauline epistles, letters. Eight more non-Pauline epistles. One Apocalypsis, Revelation. Uh, of course, other books in the New Testament contain lots of history. The whole Bible is nonfiction. But Luke specifically tells us that his expressed purpose in writing was to give us a historical account of events. Actually, in doing so, he refers us back to his first book. That's how he opens the book of Acts, is by pointing us back to his first book. He says, in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So, first off, we need to recognize not only is, is Acts uh, history, it's a historical sequel Luke immediately refers us back to his first book, namely the Gospel of Luke. He tells us that he is writing Acts as a sequel. As a matter of fact, those two books, Luke and Acts, were originally combined in the early church and considered to just be one big book, the book of Luke-Acts, for the entire first century of church history. That's how it was read and treated. Now, let's reflect uh, just for a minute. I want us to reflect on the importance of that, 
the importance of Acts being a sequel. I want you to imagine, not imagine, just think about, what's the most powerful movie you've ever seen? You don't have to shout it out. Most powerful movie, the movie that when you reached the end and the credits started rolling, you were, you were awestruck. You were dumbfounded. You, were, you couldn't move. Maybe you were in tears. I cry a lot in movies. You, you just had this overwhelming sense that you had witnessed something utterly transcendent and transformative. Holy ground, cinematically speaking. A few movies come to mind for me. Braveheart, Shawshank Redemption, Goodwill Hunting. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you're a movie producer and someone came to you pitching an idea for a sequel to that movie. Like, hey, you know how Braveheart ends climactically with William Wallace yelling out, freedom, and, and then he gets beheaded, but Robert the Bruce leads the remaining Scottish rebels into battle against the English forces, and they finally win their freedom? Well, picture this. What if we picked up the story there and made a Braveheart too about the establishment and the growth of this new Scottish government? Huh? Or how about this? You know how Shawshank Redemption ends with Andy Dufresne escaping out of the prison and that beautiful scene where he meets up with Morgan Freeman on the beach in Zawataneo. Well, what if we made a sequel about the little resort they start together and about their budding business partnership? Yeah? You would say, hard pass, right? <laughs> Terrible idea. Why? Because the movies that most des deserve a sequel don't need one, right? They stand on their own. You don't mess with perfection. I think of it sometimes in, in, in uh, the light of that, that beautiful line from one of my favorite hymns that we sing here at West Hills, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, that says, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. I think about sequels that way sometimes. What a gift Braveheart was to the cinematic you know, universe. Braveheart was a gift. There is no more for Mel Gibson now to give. Please don't even try, Mel. Don't, don't even try and make a Braveheart too. You will ruin the first one. But speaking of Mel Gibson, now let's talk about the passion of the Christ. I want you to imagine, for the sake of this analogy I'm playing out, that Mel Gibson had come up with the screenplay for the Passion of the Christ on his own. There is no Bible, no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Mel just dreamed up this powerful story about this Savior who died for the sins of the whole world and people turned out in droves to watch it. Still, the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time in this country. Now, I want you to imagine that Mel, maybe like a lot of sequels, to capitalize on that success, maybe Mel has an idea for a sequel that picks up where the passion left off with Jesus triumphantly coming back from the dead. But then he pitches you this idea. The sequel is going to open with him leaving, Jesus leaving to ascend back into heaven. And now we're going to follow the story of the disciples who he left behind here on earth. Yeah? You would say, box office flop. Mel, you're going to get rid of the hero of the story, Jesus, who, the one who moved us all to tears in the original, and you're going to center, build this sequel around his so-called friends whose big role in the original movie was denying Jesus uh, at his trial three times, fleeing from the foot of the cross at his crucifixion. Those guys are going to build the story around them. Seriously? But then... Mel says, he smiles and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the catch. Jesus isn't really gone. In the sequel, he's going to live inside his followers. 
That's the book of Acts. You would say, is it a sci-fi? Is Mel back on the bottle again? What's going on? But the craziest part about it is, that's the book of Acts. And according to Jesus himself, the sequel is even better than the original. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Because I'm going to the Father and I'm sending the Holy Spirit, you're going to do even greater works than I did. Talk about a mind-blowing, wrap your minds around that. Jesus said, hey, if you like the original where I walked on water and I fed 5,000 people with a couple fish and, and loaves of bread and I rose people from the dead, I brought them back from the dead, guess what? The story's just getting started. You're going to love the sequel. You ain't seen nothing yet. And so, genre acts as a sequel. It's a historical sequel. Here's how Luke had opened his first book, the Gospel of Luke. He said, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's gospel was an orderly, narrative, closely followed, orderly account, historical account on the basis of eyewitness testimony, and the book of Acts is more of the same. So, genre, audience. Luke also gives us the book's audience, namely, a man named Theophilus. We only know him from those two verses, Acts 1-1 and Luke 1-3, nowhere else in scripture or church history. Theophilus, his name means God, lover. Uh, Theos, God, Phyllis, lover, like Philadelphia. So some scholars speculate that Theophilus isn't an actual person, but rather a, a title that you, Luke is using to address all God-loving Christians. He's writing to the whole church. Others have suggested that because uh, we know Luke was a doctor, and most doctors back in the first century were slaves, um, that Theophilus, and, and Theophilus was a, a, a common Roman name, that Theophilus could have been Luke's master, his owner, who commissioned the book of Acts to be written. We don't know for sure. What we do know, of course, is that all scripture is God-breathed and intended for our own sanctification as well. So Luke may have been writing to Theophilus back then, but he's certainly writing for us, the church today, 2,000 years later as well. We are also Luke's audience. We're going to come back to that point in point number three. Genre, audience, author. I've already divulged uh, the identity of the I there in verse one for you. It's Luke. We know from Colossians 4.14 that Luke was a physician. We also conclude from that passage that Luke was a Gentile. In fact, Luke is the only known Gentile author of a book of the Bible, two books. Uh, we know from the highbrow kind of language and the complex sentence structure that Luke uses in the Greek that he was clearly well-educated. But most importantly, we know uh, about this author, we know that Luke was Paul's, the Apostle Paul's traveling companion. We know that from three or four references to Luke in Paul's epistles. Luke accompanied him on many of his missionary journeys throughout the, the Greco-Roman world. And so Luke would have had a front row seat to much of the narrative and, and the things that he's recording for us here, especially later in the book. There's an interesting shift in chapter 16. Luke shifts from using third-person uh, pronouns when talking about the apostles, you know, Peter and James and John, they went here and they went there. And then in chapter 16, Luke shifts and uses first-person pronouns. We, me and Paul, we went to Macedonia. So genre, audience, author, and finally Luke's purpose. What's his purpose in writing? Luke subtly slips it into verse 1 there. You'd miss it if you weren't reading carefully. One little massively important word. Circle it, underline it, highlight it in your Bibles. Began. 
The word began in verse 1. Luke writes, in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, Theophilus, I'm writing to you again, this time to assure you that all that amazing stuff that Jesus did in in, in my former gospel, the, the first book, all that amazing stuff, that was just the beginning. I'm writing this sequel to assure you that his story didn't end with the cross. His story didn't end with the resurrection. Listen, his story didn't even end with his ascension back into heaven. No, this story, God's story, has only just begun. So buckle up. And in verse 2, Luke picks up the story there, and with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, where he left off, Luke chapter 24, and he recalls for us, that after Jesus had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Luke had recounted a few of those resurrection appearances of Jesus for us at the end of his gospel. You remember uh, Jesus appeared to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. He had a special appearance to Simon Peter. He came to all of them in the upper room while they're eating and ate some fish to prove that he wasn't a ghost. Luke had recorded these things. And then in verse 4 he says, And while he was staying there, eating there with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. So that all sets the stage, the environment for this mission that Christ is about to assign them. So let's, let's keep working. Number two, the second facet of the mission that Luke records here is its empowerment. So we've got the mission's environment, And now we get its empowerment in verses 6 through 8. We hear, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, we're going to come back and, and go into way greater depth and detail on the empowerment for this mission in two weeks, in Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Lord descends, the form of the Holy Spirit, in a powerful way on these apostles at Pentecost. But for this morning, what I want us to notice is this, this connection between the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching and the sending, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So remember verse 3, what has Jesus been doing for the past 40 days? He's been presenting himself to them to prove he's really alive, risen from the dead. But, but verse 3, he's also been speaking to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was Jesus' favorite topic of conversation in the four Gospels. In fact, he called it the gospel, the good news. He said, I must preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this very purpose. That's Luke 4.43. And then in Mark 1, Jesus puts it this way. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. So without diving into all 2,000 plus years of of B.C., before Christ, history, Israelite history, Old Testament history. Here's your recap. God had called a people unto himself in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and he promised to be their king. But time and time again, they rejected him as their king, and so God allowed them to be enslaved to other foreign, fallen kings instead in Assyria and Babylon Now, in Jesus' day, 2,000 years after that original promise to Abraham, it's Rome. They're enslaved by Rome. The Israelites are now called Jews. Same, different name, same story. They're enslaved. They've rejected God as their king, and they long to be free. And God had promised them in the Old Testament to do just that, that he would come 
and free his people and regather them all back together once again under his own sovereign, benevolent rule and reign and kingship. And the good news that Jesus said he came to proclaim was that the kingdom of God was at hand, in your face. In other words, right under your noses, talking to you, i.e., I'm the king, King Jesus, here I am, I've come. So consider this exchange then in the book of Acts between the risen King Jesus and his apostles. They ask him, Jesus, now that you're back from the dead, are you going to stick around to rule the whole world from the throne of David like all the Old Testament prophets said you would? And Jesus' response is this. He says, I can't tell you when that part of the plan is going to come, my second coming. But what I can tell you is that you are all about to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and be my witnesses. Now, either Jesus is just totally ignoring their question and changing subjects, or there is an inextricable link here between the coming of the kingdom of God in its fullest, most glorious expression at the second coming of Christ on the one hand and Jesus' great commission to his church on the other hand. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus instructed his disciples that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, it might not be for you and me to know the times and the seasons that God has appointed for Jesus' return, but here's what I can almost guarantee you. Jesus will not return later this afternoon. Why? Well, because the gospel hasn't been proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations yet. So according to Jesus, unless he's a liar, the end can't come yet. Of the 17,431 nations, ethne, in the world today, 7,399 of them still are considered unreached by the gospel. They haven't even heard the name of Jesus. And that is the very context and purpose for which God sends the Holy Spirit. Now, don't, don't get... Don't get sidetracked by, you know, the gift and the Holy Spirit. Don't get sidetracked by all the miracles we're going to read and study together in Acts this year. It's all for the purpose of bringing people to saving faith in Christ. Bringing back someone literally physically from the dead, healing blind people and paralyzed people. It's all for the sake of saving souls for heaven. It's the same reason God has sent the Holy Spirit into your heart, into my heart, into the church today. It's all for the sake of reaching the lost with the good news. It's a pretty big job. It's a massive mission, if you think about it. To take a message, no matter how simple the message is, and it is very simple. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Jesus died and rose for your sins. If you give your life to him, you can have eternal life. It took me five seconds. You all know the gospel now. It's a simple message. It's the most important message, news, that's ever been announced anywhere in the history of the world. But it's simple. But no matter how simple it is, it's a massive mission. How are you going to get that message to the thousands, the 7,399 ethnes that still haven't heard it, but that live in the most remote, dangerous, gospel-hostile places on earth? North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia. I swear they don't want to hear that message. And keep in mind, Jesus assigned his original apostles this mission before social media. All right, So the apostles can't just bang out a Twitter post, a Facebook post. Jesus is king. Set it to public and wait for it to go viral. Jesus commanded them, no, go. Like, get on a ship and go 
to the nations. This is 1,500 years before Magellan even made his way all the way around the world. It's a massive mission. If we didn't know any better, we would say it's mission impossible. Here's what I can tell you. In their own strength and power, it would have been. Today, in our own strength and power, I don't care if we live in the most technologically advanced, globalized age the world has ever known. In our own strength and power, it will be impossible to finish the yet unfinished work of the Great Commission we do it in our own strength, our own power, we will fail miserably. But brothers and sisters, here's the good news of the book of Acts. God does not call us to something that he doesn't equip us for. He has not sent us out in our own power. He's filled us with his power, the power of his Holy Spirit for a purpose for this mission, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, which brings us to point number three. The mission's emissaries. Mission's environment, it's empowerment, it's emissaries. An emissary is a representative sent on a mission. So the simple question is, who is Jesus sending here in Acts 1. Can I be so bold as to suggest this morning that if you're a Christian here, your entire life's calling and purpose hinges on how you interpret one single word in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the word y'all. Hymas in the Greek, if you prefer. You plural, you all, for y'all Yankees. But listen, you have to make a decision this morning. When Jesus says you, in verse 8 here, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You have to decide this morning whether Jesus was just talking to a group of 120 people in a room in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, and whether you just show up to church today for an interesting history lesson every Sunday, or whether Jesus's you includes you. And let me just offer you two quick clues to try and help you answer that all-important, life-defining, the, the, the purpose of why you're here on earth, defining question. Number one, If you want to be included in the y'all of salvation, like when Ephesians 2.8 says, it is by grace that y'all have been saved through faith. If you want in on that y'all, the y'all of salvation, then you're in on the y'all of commission. It's the same y'all. And number two, the mission's not done. The mission is not finished. And so either Jesus was mistaken here in Acts 1 when he sent the apostles and he said, you will be my witnesses and you will go to the ends of the earth. Either Jesus thought that his first century followers were capable, they were up to the task, but, but he had unrealized expectations. He was wrong. Jesus was, was mistaken. They only made it as far as Rome by chapter 28. That's amazing, by the way, what they were able to do in 30 years compared to what we've been unable to do in 2,000 years since then. It was amazing. Fastest period of growth, expansion of the gospel in the history of the church by far. But they still only made it as far as Rome. So either Jesus was mistaken when he says, you're going to go to the ends of the earth, or we're the you. We're the y'all of Acts 1-8. Please don't settle for a history lesson every Sunday this year. 
come here to be reminded, to be inspired, to be re-empowered for the mission that your Lord has called you to. We are going to read ourselves into the the story of Acts this year. Every y'all in in the book of Acts, we're reading ourselves in. It's our story. Acts 29. You can say what you want about the the denomination, the church planning network, Acts 29. It's a great name. I know they've had their, their, their struggles, leadership stuff, whatever. It's a great name, Acts 29, because... That, that's really, we're living in the next chapter. God's story is still unfolding in the life of his church. May we be Acts 29 type churches. Number four, Luke outlines the mission's extent. Environment, empowerment, emissaries, extent. The mission must go. Jesus' witnesses must go to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I've already told you that outlines the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 7, Jerusalem, chapters 8 through 11, Judea, Samaria, chapters 12 through 28, ends of the earth. But since we are reading ourselves into the story, let me just encourage you to take this question with you as you go this morning, this afternoon, to ponder, reflect on, spend some time on. Seriously, this is, I'll give you homework. You didn't know. You get homework sometimes when you come to church. By the way, homework, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you, invite you, read the sections of Acts that we're going to be studying on Sundays uh, throughout this winter and spring. Read them before you come. Study them on your own. It will bring the story to life in, 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 in newer ways for you. So next week, read verses 12 through 26. Read the rest of chapter 1. But here's another assignment for you. Ponder, who is your Jerusalem? Who is your Judea and Samaria? In what ways are you impacting even the ends of the earth for the sake of of your Savior and the gospel? Who is your mission field? I mean, we, we can't really be effective witnesses and sent ones if we don't know who we're sent to, right? You gotta know your, your mission field. Maybe your Jerusalem is Boeing. It's ex- Express Scripts. It's, it's SLU and Maryville and Lindenwood. And maybe it's your, your immediate family. Maybe you've got unsaved children, parents, brothers, sisters, cousins, grandparents. Who's your Jerusalem? Who's your Judea and Samaria? Who are those outside of that immediate circle and scope of influence, but who God still wants to stretch you? Don't settle for just these people I have these close personal relationships with. We, we, we let ourselves off the hook so often. Well, you know, effective evangelism, you really got to have a relationship with someone. Where in the Bible do you find that? I mean, tell me one person that someone ministered to in the, in the book of Acts that they knew on a personal close level. They didn't. The very first sermon, they're speaking in languages they don't even know to people they never met. God wants, don't limit the people that God wants you to, to use to the people who you already know and have a relationship with. That's not biblical. Who's your Judean Samaria? Where does God want to stretch you outside of your, your immediate little comfort zone and hometown, so to speak, to, to impact and to witness for the gospel? And in what ways is he using you, want to use you to reach even the ends of the earth, to give your life away for the sake of the gospel? Lastly, number five, because Jesus knows how huge this job is. He leaves us not only with his empowerment for the mission, which we'll get to in two weeks, but with some encouragement as well. We need encouragement, don't we? Verses 9 through 11 are encouraging. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So that's the first encouragement. Jesus could have just teleported back to heaven. He could have just apparated back there. But I think he knew that that would have freaked the apostles out. And so it's it's encouraging for them. As sad as it must have been for them, 
Imagine standing there watching your best friend, your savior, your Lord, your king, ascend out of sight on the clouds. It must have also been encouraging to be visibly reminded of where he's going, that Jesus is going back to heaven where he will intercede for us with the Father until he returns again. And that's the even bigger encouragement that we end with in verse 11. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, two angels, stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, be encouraged. This isn't goodbye. This is just see you later. But at the same time, note what the angels say. Be encouraged, like kick in the pants encouraged, exhorted not to just stand here. What are you doing just standing here? The angels say, you got a, you got a job to do. Like, he meant it when he said, you're, you're going to be my witnesses everywhere. That's a big job. No time to waste. Let's get to witnessing. Wait on the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to get to But But you've got to get to waiting. <laughs> you've got a job. Because church, when Jesus returns in the same way that he left, riding that same cloud back down, Revelation 1-7, he rose as a king. He's coming back as a judge. And when he does, your time, my time for witnessing to our lost loved ones will be up. And their time will be up. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so, Jesus' last words and the angel's last words here to encourage us. Be encouraged. Jesus is coming back. But be exhorted when he does. He will demand an answer for how we have stewarded the, the gospel that he entrusted us with. We've got work to do until he returns. Amen.